welcome of the book titled Research-Based Strategies. This book follows and supports the work of Dr. Ruby Payne and her seminal work, A Framework for Understanding Poverty. Some of you are probably familiar with Dr. Payne's first edition of Research-Based Strategies, um, the original edition of what we will finally call RBS today. I see lots of hands up. Great. It appears as if the majority of people are familiar with RBS. So what we'll do today with that in mind is to focus on uh, how the book is different from the original. And we'll also, for those of you who have not uh, read the original edition, we'll, we'll talk about the contents as well. As you can see, this is an updated version. I had the honor of helping Dr. Payne to update the book. It's practically brand new, so we're really excited about this. Um, in the title, we do want to underscore the word research, words, research-based, because this is very highly research-based. For each strategy, once we start looking at the strategies inside of the book, you will see a list of researchers. And these researchers will be those who, um, whose primary interest was that particular strategy. But we have a new feature, and this feature is the work of Dr. John Hattie, who talks about effect size. I'm sure you're familiar with effect size, but we'll review it very briefly for those of you who might need a review. John Hattie and others, he was not the first, but he's one of the most well-known. Um, uh, John Hattie and others collected and studied and analyzed research projects. And they determined how effective a particular strategy might be based on the research related to that strategy. John Hattie's work is best known because he developed a rating scale and he gave the strategies a score. Now, he also scored influences on students' lives, but we have little control over some of those influences, so we won't discuss them today. But we all know that there are some influences on a child's life that can actually um, set them back. In other words, at the end of the year, they're worse off than perhaps they were in September. Some of those negative influences that have a, sc a score of less than zero might be moving under bad circumstances or depression. A score of zero means that um, we could use zero strategies all year long and at the end of the year, the students will be exactly where they were in December. In other words, they neither help uh, nor harm um, the student's performance. We can see this is the these are the critical scores. A strategy that has an effect size of 0 0.40 is an average strategy. And what this means is if we use strategies every day that have a rating of 0.4, then by the end of the year, the student's performance will be one year above and beyond where they were in September. So strategies with a score of 0.4 are good. They're very good. 
and our focus can be on strategies with a score of 0.4 or higher. Now, obviously, influences and strategies with an effect size higher than 4 have a greater than average effect on student growth. Um, what we can expect, of course, is that if we focus on strategies with an effect size of 0.4 or higher, that student has the potential of progressing above and beyond one year's worth before the end of the year. Now, if we'll look at number seven, a strategy that has an effect size of 1.0 indicates an increase of one standard deviation above the norm. And if we look at number eight, the influence with the highest reported effect of 1.62 could potentially affect student progress by as much as three years above and beyond the average effect. Now, another important point is that the strategies that Dr. Payne selected for her first edition and we uh, retained for this edition are strategies that uh, are appropriate for all students but are critical for under-resourced students. We uh, categorize them, and you will see in the book a chart that is very, very helpful. This is a menu. This menu helps us to analyze a student behavior. For example, if we know a student, if we're working with a student who has difficulty working with other people, and if the student does not work well with others, for example, we see a list of quite a few strategies that could potentially benefit that student. Looking on down the chart, if a student has almost no friends or is isolated, there are a number of strategies that could potentially help that student as well. Now, granted, some of the strategies in the book might be more effective with younger students. Others have the potential to be more effective with older students. But we didn't try to factor out the age appropriateness because we all know that we might be working with a senior who uh, would respond to a strategy that uh, might also work for younger children as well. So we did not try to factor out the age of the students as well. But we can see that some uh, are directly focused on behaviors. Um, managing self-behavior, and then some deal more specifically with academics. Reading, writing, language is one category, mathematics is another category, and dealing with external support, uh, resource supports is another. So we can see that the book is arranged so that um, you will be able to pick it up and uh, know where to go in the book. If you have any questions about that description of the arrangement, um, please don't hesitate to let me know. We start with analyzing student resources because, as we said earlier, this work supports Dr. Payne's framework for understanding poverty, and therefore it would, this would be an appropriate place to start, talking about student resources. Our goal is that in any given school, when, if, if I, as a teacher, um, need help in working with a student, my first comment will be, I need your help, and I can tell you that this student has 
these resources that are very strong and these two that we could perhaps develop. And when, when we approach student concerns from through this lens, then we, we, we're on second base before we even get started. As you can see, we, uh, we listed the effect size from John Hattie's work for every strategy. Some strategies have more than one effect size listed. For example, with strategy number one, this particular strategy can be a response to intervention. According to Hattie's work, RTI has an effect size of 1.07, and that is huge. If the average effect size is 0.4, then an effect size of 1.07 is, is really has the potential to take the student uh, very far throughout the year. Now, there is another item on Hattie's list that also impacts this or is impacted by this particular strategy, and that is socioeconomic class. Um, and if you know Dr. Payne's work, you know that she defines poverty in terms of resources. So when we have an under-resourced student, by her definition, um, socioeconomic status is a concern. This is this has an effect size of 0.54. It is less than 1.7 by all means, but when we compare an effect size of 0.54 with an effect size of 0.4, we realize that it is still very, very powerful or has the potential to be very powerful when we deliberately select strategies that uh, try to bridge this gap between resourced and under-resourced students. Okay. And by the way, we won't go into every single strategy in this much detail, but we're going through the components of the strategies um, in, for this first strategy so that we'll know what to expect. When you do have a copy of the book, you'll know what to expect when you open the book. You will have these components for each strategy. We added a notation dealing with the added effect of poverty. Because Hattie himself um, states that his effect sizes are average. 0 0.40 is the average rating of the average strategy. And he says, he acknowledges that uh, for some students, a particular strategy with an effect size of 0 0.40, um, this strategy, the effect might be much, much higher than that. For others, it might be much lower. This is one example. If I am an adequately resourced student, then this um, strategy could still help me but the impact wouldn't be nearly as great as it would be for an under-resourced student. And we made these notations along the way just so that we could keep in mind that while the effect size might be 0 0.40 for some of our under-resourced students, then the potential could be even greater. Okay, every strategy does have an explanation, of course, when you go through the book. And many of the strategies actually have more than one activity. So for our, our session today, we are showing just a sample activity. And the one uh, that we selected is to look at a list of questions from uh, other sources from Dr. Payne's work. 
that we can ask ourselves, how do we know if a student has an adequately developed emotional resource, by the way? These questions can help us to analyze the student's behavior. And Dr. Payne is very quick to say we would never have enough time, nor should we even try, to, use, to go through each of these questions for every single student. We would get little else done during the day. But if we selected the 10% of the students about whom we are most concerned in, in terms of uh, potential failure or challenges, then uh, these are the questions that we could ask. Okay, And of course, she has questions for uh, each of her resources. As I mentioned earlier, this book supports her work on uh, framework for understanding poverty. So the first few strategies are a direct support of that which she includes in uh, framework. This a particular strategy on mental models. The effect size we pulled from teacher clarity, 0.75. That's huge. Concept mapping is huge. And also, we see visual perception uh, programs. One sample men mental model, I'm sure most of you are familiar with Dr. Payne's work, and you're quite familiar with her mental models. But I included this one because it was shared with me by a secondary teacher, economics teacher, a few years ago, and I thought it was brilliant. He said that his students had trouble understanding the concept of inflation, and he struggled to explain the concept clearly. So finally, one day he said, students, listen, there are two ways to get from the first floor to the top floor. We can take the stairs, or we can take the elevator. When your income takes the stairs, and the cost of living takes the elevator. This is inflation. And he said they all understood it suddenly. And I could almost guarantee that our under-resourced students benefited from this even more than some of those who had background and home experience with income and inflation. So this is just one example of mental models for academic content. Now, we were very careful to include mental models for processes because, um, as Dr. Payne points out, and as you know, we sometimes focus on the academics and the product above and beyond the process, but the, the process is really what we're trying to teach. So we did include mental models for processes. The, for those of you who are familiar with Piagetian programs, uh, Piagetian programs, uh, some people pronounce, pronounce it, I'm, um, we, we know that in Piagetian programs, um, there are many components, but the component that we focused on is acknowledging the fact that uh, we teach process skills um, almost at the expense or, or we, we do not teach academics at the expense of process skills. We teach the two equally. Okay. And this example is from Dr. Payne's original book, so we won't spend time on it, but um, if you're not familiar with it, it's a, a mental model of a process. Another category from Dr. Payne's original book is that of building relationships. So you're familiar with that. We won't go into the detail. 
But we do want to talk for just a minute about another strategy that is from her original book, and that is teaching cognitive or input skills. In her original book, she focused on this strategy much less than we do in the updated version because it has become more and more apparent as we go through the work that these input skills are, are the ones that are typically less familiar with processes or are beneficial for those particular students. The list that you see, 1 through 12, this is a list of skills that some students have not adequately developed. Often, it's the under-resourced student who has not learned to plan, for example. Um, sometimes under-resourced students don't learn to focus as well as other students. Some students are actually learn in order to survive not to focus on things around them. Uh, some of our students come from backgrounds where even loving parents and parents who are doing the very best they possibly can might be overwhelmed and have little time to teach students to control impulsivity, for example. So these are the skills this, that are the foundation for all or most of the other skills in the book. So again, we elaborated on this list more so than we had done in the past. Building on what we just said, uh, strategy number 11, builds on the input skill of planning. You might be familiar with the step sheets, but in the new version, this is explained as a strategy for teaching the input skill of planning. And we focus on the amount of time because some of our students live in a whenever world. And when we give them uh, a task to do, their time frame is, I'll finish it whenever. Um, and, and that will be um, what, what they're thinking of in terms of their time frame unless we tell them very specifically how much time they have. Our time is, is about half up. I'm going to pause before we go to another strategy to see if there are questions. Okay. Let's move on then if there are no questions to strategy um, number 13. I'm reading comments and looking at the strategy at the same time. Strategy number 13 also directly addresses one of the input skills. And it is titled Academic Task Preparations to Control Impulsivity. I'm sure many of you have students who simply have not learned to control impulsivity. According to Ruva Feuerstein, and I failed to mention the list that we examined when we looked at strategy number 10 is from the research work of Dr. Ruva Feuerstein. Feuerstein tells us that impulsivity control is learned. When we were babies, we were all impulsive, but many of us learned to control it. Some students have not. And his, uh, he points out very clearly that some individuals go through life uh, with an impulsive nature because they have not learned to control it. And we know what this looks like in the classroom. We have students who start with step five because impulsive people think the first few steps are a waste of time. So they just jump in wherever they want to. Um, 
And this is an example of a trip sheet, I'm, I'm sorry, a step sheet, and how it can help students to learn to control impulsivity as long as we say to the student, do step one first. After you have finished step one, then we'll move to step two. I see that has a question. She says, you have mentioned a previous webinar, the value of teaching students, the value of communication from poverty to middle class language. Would you briefly hit on that? Um, you're absolutely right. And we'll check and see if we will fast forward to it so that we'll be sure and address your particular concern. If it's okay, I'll go. I'll continue as we're going. Strategy 14 also addresses input skills focusing. We have some students who don't know how to focus um, because they we're, we're all born with a blurred and sweeping vision. And if I have a caring adult who holds an object up in front of me and says, look closely, it has buttons. Look at the color. I'm learning to focus. But if my caring adult does not have that time or wherewithal, then I go through life with a blurred and sweeping vision, and I miss things around me. This is one activity that we can use for helping students to focus on features in a book. We, have, we literally have students who can read an entire chapter in a textbook or read a whole textbook and miss 50% of it, they come to school and say, I studied for this test, I'm ready. And then they fail the test. And sometimes they fail the test because, well, they did look at the chapter, but they don't know how to focus. They missed the print features. They missed the graphics. And we ask them, why didn't you answer the question about, um, about the chart? And they'll ask, what chart? Okay. So, uh, Please don't let me forget at the very end, if I have not addressed your question, to make sure that, that we do that. Um, rather than trying to fast forward, I'm afraid I will never find my place again. But we will make sure that we answer your question, if that's okay. I, I have skipped forward to strategy 18. As I said, uh, we won't have time to cover everyone, but again, we're looking at a strategy that directly addresses one of the skills on that list that we saw in strategy 10. This is a strategy for teaching students how to deal with nonfiction. This is another one that is from Dr. Payne's original work as well. Predicting and planning your grade has been mentioned in Dr. Payne's work, but we want to say that this particular strategy has an enormous effect size. If you go online and listen to Dr. Hattie himself explain some of the categories, when he explains this category, he tells us that when students predict grades, they, um, they'll often underestimate their abilities, but then when they make a B instead of the C they predicted, um, then that this improves their self-concept. And this is what he means by self-reported grades. This might sound like the student calling out the grade they made on a test, but he's referring to the prediction as well. Dr. Payne points out, in addition to what Dr. Hattie tells us, that when students predict their grades, they have a future story 
and we know that we have some students who show up every day never having even considered what grade they want to make or what tomorrow might hold for them in that particular class. Um, and, and as this says, they are motivated. So the explanation, uh, we have the students, uh, and we, we tell them to uh, predict their grade, which usually requires procedural self-talk. And this involves the whole brain. For the child. I'm skimming over some of the words in the explanation, so if I skim too fast, please let me know. Okay, This is an example of, of an approach that you could use if you work with younger children. You could simply have one question. What grade do you hope to make or what grade will you try to earn in this class? But as the students progress, then we have them uh, do more work in analyzing their grades and what they can do. Okay, strategy 25, we will not cover except to say this, this strategy is huge. When you get your copy of the book, you'll want to really focus on this strategy. We won't cover it today because it's more complex than some of the others. We'll begin by saying this, we have students who have no earthly idea why they're taking physics. In fact, I read one research study that tells us that fewer than 50% of high school graduates can accurately tell us what the definition of social studies is. We make the assumption that they know. That's natural. But this strategy begins with working K through college, working together and asking ourselves, what is the definition of social studies? Why do we study social studies? And Dr. Payne has some definitions in her book. The book then takes us further in analyzing disciplines by talking about patterns and structures. But for today, we'll simply say that if K through college teachers, if we posted the purpose of disciplines, our students would potentially have a better chance of understanding why they're there, particularly those who might not have someone at home to help them to understand why they're taking chemistry, as an example. Strategy 27, there are a number of school districts that are adopting programs that uh, feature having students, um, having students select the process that they want to use. And what this entails is having a list of possible processes on a board. And then rather than telling the students exactly which process to use, have them select. But the key here is that we have to teach the processes first. A high, an extremely high effect size. Again, we have an added effect of poverty because self-regulation skills are learned. And some of our students simply have not learned how to ask themselves, what, what should I do to address this problem? What strategy should I use? And if you're interested in reading further, you might want to read in the category of self-regulation. Okay, these are some of the self-regulatory skills, but we add the process um, um, mental models that we discussed earlier to the list as well. 
Strategy 30, we're all familiar with activating prior knowledge, and we know how important it is. So for Strategy 31, we talk about um, compensating for missing prior knowledge. It would be natural if we wanted to start a unit on um, another country to talk about vis having visited that country. But for some students, that, that's extremely foreign, and we might need to find ways to help to compensate for missing prior knowledge. This particular uh, edition of the book lists some of those strategies, such as um, giving the students picture books to read, even high school students. If I plan to start a unit next week on the Great Depression, for example, if I give my under-resourced students a picture book about the Great Depression, they can read it the night before, and they come to school the next day with some prior knowledge on which to build. Strategy 32 warns us about minimizing the activation of irrelevant prior knowledge. If I'm from an under-resourced background and you're talking about uh, Elizabeth Taylor as an example, if I've never been to the movies, I don't know who Elizabeth Taylor was, and I don't know that's an example unless you say to the class, students, please put your pencil down. This is an example. You do not need to write it down. Okay. Worked examples I find very intriguing. This is a very well-researched strategy that is often underused. We simply uh, give students a worked example. Instead of giving them ten, 10 problems to solve, we give them two problems to solve and one worked example so that their task is to analyze that example, use the structure, use the process in solving their own problem. And research tells us that the, the results are greater than giving them multiple tasks or multiple problems to solve. I find this uh, strategy really intriguing. Okay, strategy 35, teaching another student. What we added, uh, what we're adding at this moment is this. Teaching another student can be beneficial, but the greatest benefit comes when we have the student to write a lesson plan for the lesson that they will be teaching. If I have uh, learned the multiplication table, for example, but I would benefit from more practice, if you ask me to tutor another child, that helps. But if you ask me to develop a lesson plan for the tutoring session, then the effect size is even higher. Okay, So peer tutoring can have an effect size of 0.55, but it, it actually depends on how we go about it. Okay. The bow tie feedback. Um, feedback has an effect size of 0.73. So I put the bow tie together as a mnemonic for myself. I hope you find it useful. But what I did with this, I read as much research as I could find about appropriate feedback. And I discovered five components, starting at the very far left. Students benefit from us reminding them of where they were. Student, look at where you were last week. 
Now go to the center of the bow tie, student. Look at where you are now. Look at how much you have grown. To the far right, we can say, now by next week, this is where you can be. Now, going back to the actual bow tie, let's think about how you got from where you were to where you are now. What process did you use? Let's look at your progress. Let's self-evaluate. Now, how can you move from where you are now to where you want to be? What processes, what strategies should you use? Now, obviously, I would not be able to provide all five components of this feedback every time I give feedback to a student. But what I use this for is a reminder to myself rather than saying, hey, good job. I This helps me to remember if I focus on at least one of these components, then I have given appropriate feedback. If I have more time, I might provide more than one. Okay. Student self-assessment. Uh, when students, th this is similar and yet slightly different from the one we, we reported earlier. This one is an assessment of what they have done. Question making is part of that. Um, this is from Dr. Payne's work, so we won't talk about it in detail. But we, we want to point out that the effect size, uh, I didn't include all of the uh, background for the strategy, but the effect size is high. But that effect size is an average. So for under-resourced students, many of our under-resourced students have not been encouraged to ask questions. So the effect size for those particular students would be even higher. Well, there it is. I did include it after all. It is 0.64 on the average, but this would be much, much higher for under-resourced students. This will look familiar to you. Dr. Payne recommends that we start with uh, teaching students to write multiple choice questions because they're the easiest to write. And then we move on to higher level thought questions. Open-ended questions are the most difficult questions to write. When I taught full-time at a college, I required my students to um, write open-ended questions on the work that they had read for homework. Their questions really left a lot to be desired at the beginning. So starting with multiple choice questions for, with younger students, I, I think, is a really good idea. Now, when we talk about role identity, um, I don't know how many of you have watched the video Tammy stories. It's one that we share when we conduct our workshops. And by the way, when we, those of us who are consultants for Dr. Payne, conduct a workshop on research-based strategies. We spend six hours on this and we still don't cover everything. That's why I'm talking kind of fast today. But we show a clip about a, a teenager who is so, so, so very close to graduating. When we view the update 14 years later, we learned that he dropped out. And what he tells us is that his significant other, he, he and his significant other were expecting a child. And he said, I had to be a real man and drop out of school and take care of my baby. Well, if you or I were in that same situation, we would say to our son, be a real man and finish high school first. 
what role identity changes depending on the stability of one's background. The uh, role identity is gleaned from peer influences, home environment, parental involvement, and we can see the effect size is high. I did include a few of the slides from this one um, because this particular strategy does list stages. And when we're familiar with the stages of role identity, then we can better recognize where a student is. Thank you.